0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from... Williams A. Aguirre, An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a group uh, of people around
1: me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much but then you said we're going to do 75 sets of these to me that seems extreme so i'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining wearing yourself out so that you're (laughs)
0: no no that's actually funny and it's funny and i'll I'll tell you why (laughs) that's a good one man i'll tell you why look
1: Welcome to Death Road Diaries, I'm Matt Ralston And
0: this is William May
1: And today we're going to be talking about this guy that you know I think we both feel pretty angry about this man's existence Named uh, Lawrence or Larry Bittaker. And we're going to talk about your kind of experiences with him And before that, we have a few listener questions don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. Patreon.com slash Death Row Diaries. And uh, please rate and review the show on iTunes. And that's all we got. Um, so we have Jeremiah in Long Beach, California wants to know. Oh, man, we get a lot of these. So he wants to know, like, what's the, the best commodity... In, uh, in prison, I, I guess in terms of like foodstuffs is what he's asking.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, at least questions always catch you by surprise. But um, look, in my opinion, the best commodity is a mind, a sound mind. But uh, yeah, he's referring to things you can buy here, like at store and stuff like
1: that. Yeah, I think so because. Yeah, I think he's thinking of, like, the commissary.
0: Well, I mean, for me, it's... You know, they give us a choice to buy things if you have the money for it. Nothing's free in prison. Everything costs money. And um, if you stay just eating the food they give you here, it's, it's pretty bad. It's horrible. Uh, we get these trays that are plastic, and they look like ca- cafeteria uh, school food when you're in elementary school. That's basically the level. So... Uh, in terms of what I like to buy, you know, I I eat mostly fish. That's one of my the staples of my diet, and um, I stick to that. So a lot of guys like cookies. They sell chips. They sell just about everything you can pick up at a Seven Eleven store. They sell in the canteen or, or commissary or a small store. So just you can think of what you can get at a Seven Eleven store, and you know pretty much what's in our commissary. But for me specifically, it's. Uh, The fish products and the thing, you know, you can buy clams, you can buy oysters, you can buy mackerel, tuna, uh, black beans, uh, hell, there's a number of things you can buy. Uh, Matt, what we should do is I I should send you the canteen list that we have here and you can post it on the website so people can see what it is that we can actually buy on death row. Uh, It's pretty substantial. They allow us to go for about $240. I'll tell you that I've never spent over 120 bucks a month, and that's probably once in my entire, you know, three and a half decades on death row. And this just—I can't imagine buying that many chips. But there are guys that do it. For me, uh,
1: not so much. Yeah, I'm also like—I uh, eat healthy. You know, I try to. Obviously, I—I kind of cheat from time to time. But yeah, it's a good idea. We should put on our uh, website. Like a list of ingredients, and have people make like the ideal, um, like a I don't know, like a Thanksgiving feast out of commissary items, maybe. Man, what are you doing,
0: man? You're making our podcast into a freaking cookie show.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's forget that one. But let you know, on the. the list.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's actually not do oh, that. Never mind.
0: Uh, no, we should put the canteen list and let guys people look and see what it is. That- is allowed to be bought here. But yeah, uh,
1: let's not do a Thanksgiving dinner, okay, guys? Because I'm not going to get to eat it. So uh, Baba from St. Louis has an interesting question. And normally I wouldn't really care about this type of question because it seems semantic, but because race is so kind of entwined with the subjects that we're talking about, you know, he says. Um, I noticed that Bill says African American when referring to African Americans, and Matt says Black, and and you know, obviously he he doesn't have a bone to pick, but um, I guess he's wondering why you you probably have a valid reason for for using that uh, that term. Well, that's a good question, and thank you. But
0: the reason I used African American, Mexican American. Or whatever. It's because race is a very big issue in prison, and I like to always give other races the due respect. Um, unfortunately, as a child, I was referred to, because I'm Hispanic, by really well, bad terms. So I like to always give every race, and I've talked to a number of, of convicts that are African American, and I've asked what they would like to be referred to as. And the majority always say African-American. Others say, you know, we're brothers. And I get that. But I like to give that kind of respect when it comes to people of their races. And um, there are big differences. I'm sure that he's probably referring to this because when it comes to guys that are Caucasian or whites, uh, guys that are hardcore white guys don't want to be known as Caucasians. They call other whites who are not at their level being convicts, they call them Caucasians. So each race has their own uh, format they like to refer to each other as. So I've always stayed very close to my nose to the grinder on what's really being said and how it's being said, so I don't insult anybody who uh, is sensitive to those racial boundaries.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I kind of try and do the same thing as I keep my Nose to the grindstone and whatever people refer to themselves as if I'm permitted, that's usually what I try and do. Um, yeah.
0: Because today's day where there's a lot of sensitive people out there. And I hate to go into this line of it, but but look, every person, every group wants to be called by it. It changes. It varies. I mean, there, there've been changes from the seventies, eighties, nineties and 90s of how groups like to be referred to. And, you just have to stay up on those things because otherwise you could insult somebody and it can lead down a path that you don't want to go to. And especially in today's day and age, I mean, geez, every group has the names that they want to be called. And, you know, who, you know, who am I to say they shouldn't be? So I'd like to be sure that I refer to them in a manner, in which they feel that i am being
1: respectful to that particular group. Yeah. I mean, I would assume, especially as someone who's been called names and, and probably been kind of misidentified or whatever, like you're probably a little more aware of it than your average person, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're going to get into this case, which is one of our kind of seediest, most disturbing cases. But before we do that, I think you were telling me, like right before we spoke, that something happened if we have any new listeners you're on death row you've been on death row for the better part of three decades um and i guess there was another incident again
0: yeah it's been a pretty rough week on uh, on monday this week there was a very severe stabbing with a guy basically passed away but they brought him back severe stabbing and then of course today there was an incident in the yard as well where another guy what was um, Assaulted. And it's just, it's a trend. It it picks up in prison. There are different factors that have this trend go up and it goes down. Sometimes we have a few weeks and nothing happens. It's peaceful. And over just nothing erupts. Um, About a month ago, there was, as I explained to you before, severe stabbing where three individuals were severely stabbed. And then now on Monday, it happens again. And then again today. So there's a lot of things going on here. Um, quite honestly, I wish I didn't have to deal with this or speak about these things, but I think that we do a disservice to the listener to let them know what's really going on death row, and these are death row diaries. So I want to let them know what's going on, how it's going on, and the type of violence that happens in these places when you when you put together so many criminals with a violent past in a particular very small space there's always these huge problems going on and this week has been no exception um, so yeah it's just it's been bad um i mean we, we've had obviously worse weeks here with violence but this one's been up there
1: yeah and I, I i don't know if our listeners realize but everything we're saying is being recorded and probably monitored and what you say on these recordings. You know...
0: This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Speak of the devil.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You know, that could potentially get back to people. Um, So, I don't know if you can speak to the motivations of these stabbings or if it's something that you'd feel comfortable, you know, talking about briefly.
0: Well, I'm not privy to what was going on in these particular instances. Um, It was a different yard than my yard that were involved in the first instance and, um, yeah, I, I I don't have any insider scoop as to the motivation behind them, but I, they obviously took place. Um, you know, they usually have to do the first five rules of prison, gambling, (laughs) you know, drugs, gang, you know, those types. So it's always got to do with one of those things. Um, and yeah, well, it's about all I can say that I know about. And, um, it wasn't nice, you know. When you see a man being butchered in front of you, um, it's never nice. And it's it, although the guy's here for murder, and he may not be a nice guy, uh, you, your your heart tends to go out to that person when you see a person being well, basically butchered in front of you. And there's really nothing you can do about it. You're you're worried about being, being shot because we go to a yard in this very large cement cubicle with 15-foot gun rail surrounding the entire yard, which is basically a fishbowl. And when someone begins to attack somebody else, the gun rail is shooting at you. There are bullets flying. There's You're worried about not getting hit by a ricochet. And usually it's, it's, you're on survival mode. You know what's going on, but you're trying to survive that moment.
1: It sounds like it's kind of affected you a little bit. As as it would any, uh, anyone, but it, it sounds like it's it's kind of troubling you.
0: Uh, it is. I mean, it's it's like being in a war zone. It's it's, it's really that. I mean, I I, I know I don't want to uh, make it sound like these guys are at war for you know Vietnam or it's not like that. This is more. You have bullets flying, and it, it's it's troubling. It's, it's it gets your adrenaline going. And then when you come down from being so hyped up because you're afraid of being killed that, you know, you, you kind of collapse, your emotional st- um, stability collapses, you feel depressed because of the adrenaline. It, it's just really not a good place to be for as long as I've been in it and survived it as I have. Just not a good situation for the human um, condition.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's safe to say that you don't belong there. Yeah. Um. I want to say on a more positive note, but it's really not, we're going to have to talk about a guy that you uh, kind of had to rub elbows with, unfortunately named Lawrence Bitteker and his, his accomplice. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about that.
0: All right, man. so we're back.
1: Yeah. So this is, this is one that I've been wanting to discuss with you since we started talking, because in my personal experience, when I started uh, researching, you know, people on death row who are all in, in San Quentin. Um, that's the only uh, death row that California has. And you can kind of tell, you know, it's a lot of Mexican and African-American gangbangers for the most part. And then you look at this guy's face and, even though those guys are kind of scary, this guy—I just a tingling sensation immediately shot up my spine. Like there's something deeply wrong with this, <laughs> with this person. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. This guy, um, Lawrence Sigmund Bittker, and his accomplice Royd Lewis Norris. Um, these guys are the guys that parents tell kids to watch out for. Don't accept rides from people. If you see someone ask you if you want some candy, this is the guy that they're talking about. So there's a good reason why you're feeling that way about this. And I'd like to say this before we get totally into this guy. In his case, and what he did was that, you know, if you're not 18 years old, you shouldn't be listening to the show, first and foremost. The content regarding these individuals' actions and deeds are horrific. Um, we're going to go into the detail about what they did. Uh, it's nothing that we're sensationalizing or that we're boasting. We're simply here to give the public an inside view of what these guys do, and I'm going to attempt to give you kind of a profile of this guy and what motivates this guy to do what he does. So that's our our 10-second or 15-second...
1: Uh, public announcements. Well, it's an appropriate disclaimer. I mean, there were jurors that that were kind of running into the hallway and, and vomiting. Even his defense attorneys couldn't stomach what these guys were doing. Um, and I guess we're just going to maybe limit it to to Bitaker. It should be known that he had another guy named Roy Norris who was completely... Um, complicit and and involved with their um, with their crimes as well but uh, Norris was a little bit smarter because he he, uh, he rolled over immediately on his on his buddy so um, right yeah yeah he's not only a piece of garbage he's also a tail. so
0: yeah absolutely um, so yeah let's let's get into this guy so Bitteker, uh born September 27 1940. Um, he is known as the, the toolbox killers. The both of them are him and his crime partner, um, as you mentioned, Roy Norris. Um, so Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, his parents didn't want him as an infant and they placed him in an orphanage and was adopted by the Biddickers. Um, his adopted father worked in the aviation industry. His movie and his uh, family moved around the U.S. a lot. This guy was a bad seed to begin with. Age 12, he's arrested for shoplifting. The next four years, he develops into a professional shoplifter, a petty petty thief, and he kind of uses the media to go back in his life and admits that he was stealing because he didn't receive the kind of Compassionate and lack of love that he didn't get from his family. You know, I am just gonna say it right now, bullshit. Okay, he he was he's like those serial killers like to come back and tell you what they what they want you to believe in know, you feel some kind of sympathy or kind of almost understand why they did what they did, and that's a
1: crock. Okay, so well, it's almost like if there's the- if there's inherent evil, like maybe. Maybe his parents gave him up because they were like, I don't like, I don't like anything about this this um, Damien, you know.
0: <laughs> well yeah, maybe, maybe he was he was kind of like Damienish, but it, the funny thing is he didn't do anything that was violent for a very long time. He dropped out of high school at, at 1957 age 16. Uh, they moved to California and then he starts GTA, hit and run. Uh, he's reported to have 138 IQ. Eh, look, again, there's this whole thing that people think that these serial killer killers are extremely intelligent. My interaction to this guy, none of the above seem true. 138 IQ, I'd argue it was, it was really pressing. It was, it was over 95. Okay? <laughs> and I knew the guy. So, nevertheless, you know, he's convicted for the hit and run GTA, goes to YA until the age of 18. Then he's released and his adopted parents no longer live at the address he thought that they were at because they do not want a relationship with him. They moved out of the states. So, it doesn't take him long to violate his parole. He is he's arrested again for moving a stolen car across state lines. He gets 18 months in the federal penitentiary. But he's transferred shortly after to a medical facility. And This is something I want the audience to keep in mind, the whole medical facility. He's released in 1960 again, but within a month he's arrested again in Los Angeles for robbery and sentenced to 15 years. He's sent to prison, but he goes to a psychiatric ward, diagnosed as being highly manipulative, well, go figure, and he has a concealed hostility. I mean, that's brilliant,
1: these doctors figured that out, right? I mean, God, what do who pays these guys? Seems like they got the yeah, obvious guess, part, but I, I don't know. Maybe the, the part they didn't study is well. Then you probably shouldn't uh, release him into the public.
0: Yeah, well you talk to this guy for three minutes, you know there's something wrong with him. But nevertheless, they released him in 1963, hmm. and he is at it again. The following year, October, he is doing another prison sentence for violation. And then he goes further psychiatric examination by two independent doctors that classify him as borderline psychopath, and he's given medication and released again. So, you know, this is just incompetency back to back.
1: But so when you it again 1960. Uh, uh, go ahead. well, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask, like when when you look at a photo of this guy, and you know. I, You're probably tougher than I am, but both of us, I think, can handle our business. But I'm not intimidated by this guy because he he just, you know, he looks like kind of a petite little cream puff. But it does intimidate me a little bit just knowing what he's done.
0: Well, yeah, but the problem is you don't know what he's done when you first meet the guy or if you meet him on the street somewhere. He just looks like he wasn't you know, creepy and old when he was younger. He was just a normal guy. But yeah, when you're around him, you pick up that vibe that something's off about this guy. And and look, it's just this continual thing. 1960, arrested again for theft. He's sentenced to five years. He's released in three years. He's back at it again, arrested for burglary. He's given six months to 15 years, but again, he's released in three years. 1974, he's arrested for assault. But this is where things switch. In 1974, he's arrested for spo- assault to commit murder because a store clerk sees him stealing a steak. And then he leaves without paying. The clerk follows him out to the parking lot and says, Hey, you know, did you forget to pay for that steak that you have? editor responds by turning, stabbing the guy in the chest, and then he's grabbed by two clerks, detained. And he's sent to prison. And this is where things, well, for the rest of the public, go bad. He is sent to the men's colony, which is CIM. It's a California prison. It's kind of a soft prison. It's not San Quentin. It's not Folsom. But then again, he didn't have that many felony crimes since the last one. And that is significant because we bring in his crime partner, Roy Norris. And he is the opposite of Iteker. Um You know, he's born out of wedlock, but his parents married because back then, if you didn't get married, you had a child, you, were, well, you weren't looked upon with terrible eyes. He claims, because they put him up for foster care, that he was molested. He joins the Navy at 17, but he's basically kicked out for sexual offenses against women. Um, So they discharge him from the Navy under terms labeled as psychological problems. He's on bail for that charge, and he rapes another woman. Uh, He attacks, then, a student at San Diego State University. And this is just plain violence on his part. He He strikes her in the head with a rock until she slumps over, and then he begins to bash her head against the concrete. He's arrested and sent to, here we go, a Castadero State Hospital for people with mental disorders and being a sex offender. He's released and right back in prison again because the doctors deem him not to be a danger to others. However, three months later, he rapes another woman in Orlando Beach, tried and convicted, sent to where? The men's colony where he meets...
1: Um, you know I've always had the philosophy if you're insane or not I don't really care if if the thing that keeps you from raping and killing children and you know just innocent people is taking a pill I don't want you on the street
0: I agree completely well I'll take it further than that if you're a sex offender you're raping Men, women, children. I don't think that there's any place in society for you. Even the parole boards and CDCR, the governor, they don't pardon, they don't give commutations to people with sex crimes. They just don't. Because they recognize there is no cure for it. That's a drive inside of you. You're wired a certain way. And you can't stop. And we're going to hear about why this is absolutely true with these guys. You could have castrated both of these guys and they had no functioning parts and they still would do the same thing because that drive inside of them tells them to do it. They're sick and short of just you know putting on planet Mars, they shouldn't exist. All right, Matt.
1: Yeah, so we're back. So these two guys meet essentially through the system and i'm i'm not really joking but bideker has a van you're well, older yeah, than that's... i am were, were vans did they have the stereotype back then of if someone drives a van you should probably avoid them
0: well my dad a van, so i don't know if that's <laughs> true or not but uh, you know it's People, grown men are pulling up next to cops trying to pick you up in a van. I would suggest not getting into it because um, you just shouldn't do it. But yeah, these guys, um, well, look, they met in the men's colony um, and they kind of hit it off. This is where things get really interesting because Bitteker doesn't show any uh, leaning, he doesn't lean towards sexual misconduct. Nowhere in his record is show anything like that. But in talking to Norris, because he twice intervened to protect Norris from being attacked by other convicts or inmates or prisoners, I can't see that either one of these guys was on a mainline. Norris was a sexual predator. Uh, he would not have been in a California prison in the 1970s and walking around. It would have killed him. So, uh, my call is that both these guys were in protective custody. So somebody tried attacking Norris and Bittaker intervened and they got to talking. And they kind of showed an interest and in, get this, in sexual violence and misogyny. Which, again, seems strange because Bittaker never had any kind of sexual offenses. Nevertheless, they talk, start talking about raping women, especially girls. And they begin to share what they would like to do, how they like to do it, and they start devising this plan of what they're gonna do. At which point, from all reports, Bitter tells Norris that if he ever was to rape a girl, he would kill her because he didn't want witnesses. So, you know, this is a pretty creepy conversation. You have two guys in prison developing plans on how to kidnap basically kids and do horrible things to murder them, kill them, uh, torture them. And part of the plan is they want to rape and kill a girl for each year between 13 and 19. So 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. um, Once they're released. No, I was just going to say that Bidico was released first. And yeah,
1: go ahead, please. Well, they made this, I don't know, agreement amongst themselves that they were going to rape, these girls of ascending ages, which is really disturbing. And I guess that's why I hate this guy more than even your average psycho is that I I think it's exaggerated with the, you know, psych community, like just like he's, he's probably not a genius, but he's, that just means to me, like, he's not an idiot. He's very aware of what he's doing.
0: uh, Yeah, absolutely. These guys, They know what they were doing. They're planning this thing in prison. And I'll I'll be the first one to tell you, a lot of guys in prison make plans. I've heard guys talk about what they're going to do. And usually, if I want to fly a kite, I want to go surfing, I want to get a motorcycle. Guys don't normally sit down very rarely and plan all these robberies and what they're going to do. Yeah, they boast and then actually go out and do it. That's rare. But sure enough, in October of 5th in 1978, Bittiger is released. And he gets a job as a machinist. He lives in a Burbank motel where he's often seen keeping the company of teenagers. He has alcohol, he has marijuana. He's kind of already getting this thing going. And three months later, Norris is released. Uh, and He goes to his mother's home in Orlando Beach. And within one month, they've already connected. They are now really planning what they're going to do. And the first thing they do, this is like clockwork. These guys are not waiting years. These are days they purchased this van that you mentioned, the GMC Vendura. It's a silver gray van. And they even planned that they wanted the door on the side to slide sideways. So you don't have to actually open the door where you can see it open. This door slides backwards and the entire compartment is open. The reason they did this is because they wanted to be able to open the door, pass by a girl, grab her and throw her in, close the door and keep rolling. And here's the good part. I'm not sure it's a good part. These two clowns actually nicknamed the van before they did anything. Murder Mac.
1: You know, to me, when I I look at these types of crimes and I love Southern California, I think it's like one of the most beautiful places in the country. and, and I've, been to all these places. I walk around and I picture myself as—I mean, these were girls, but still, just as like a naive teenager—and someone just pulls you into this van. Yeah, and you can see it. I, it's
0: been years since I've been up. I spent a lot of time at the beach surfing, and I and I remember seeing girls, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, just hanging around the beach, and a lot of them were naive. They—they're rebellious. They want, and they get in these cars and these people, and. It, it, it always ends bad, but these two guys—they really did. I mean, they actually did something that most serial killers don't do. We've heard of M.O., and it's—it's—it's it's, it's really a, they're perfecting their method of operation. They're—they're they're perfecting it by committing the crimes, and they do it as they're killing people. These two are different. These two pick up over twenty teens they offer them pot, they drink with them, they hang out, but not once did they harm one of them. These were all practice runs. They were perfecting their mo, and they also discovered how to isolate people, and they discovered the fire road in San Gabriel Martin Mountains where they found a gate. Bitteker breaks the lock, sticks his own lock on there so no one else can go up there, and now that they're set Now that they're set, they go after their first girl that they know that they are going to commit a crime against. And and I will say before we start this, they, there was another girl that they tried to pick up. They did pick her up. They did rape her. And she comes back to haunt them because they released her. And remember Bideker's words, if I rape somebody, I'm going to kill them because I don't want witnesses. And
1: that comes back to haunt them. So this was actually girl. a pretty, I, I hate to give credit because I don't want it to sound like that, but there are these back roads all over, you know, this, this part of California. It's, it's, it's rural once you get out of the city. So he put his own lock on one of these gates that you see everywhere. So no one would really think yes. to, to go there. And you think this was calculated that they were actually like kind of practicing what they were going to do?
0: Absolutely. From my study on the serial killers that I've looked and studied for the past 25 years, and that includes Richard Ramirez, Randy Kraft, and Rodney O'Connor and I don't know, dozens of other ones, this is exactly what they were doing. They just weren't killing the girls. You see serial killers, they fumble around, they kill a couple of them, and their MO changes a little bit, throws, it throws law enforcement out, because they're fumbling around, they're getting better, they're perfecting it. These two knew what they wanted to do. They already had it planned out. But they started executing the plan to get better at it without killing They wanted to make sure they could do it. And they had the gate, the uh, rural area in San Gabriel Mountains. Yeah, that's exactly what these two clowns are doing.
1: Mm -hmm. And so when when does their first victim, uh, when do they decide to do that?
0: Yeah, it's it's not the June twenty fourth, nineteen seventy nine, and the the teenager that they picked up was Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. She was sixteen years old, and she was at a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach, which was Norris's uh, stomping grounds. His mother lived in that area, and um, they had just installed the van and a cooler and by the way, they had their tools in place in the van already when about 8 o'clock in the evening Norris sees Miss Schaefer walking and he tries to pick her up, offering her a pot, a ride home, and she refuses. She says, hell no. And she just kind of diverts her, her, her path and walks. So these guys, they pull ahead and then pull over and they open that sliding door in the side of the van, and Norris is pretending to be inside the van doing something. And when Miss Schaefer walks by, he grabs her, drags her into the van, and Biddicker turns at the stereo while Norris ties her up, gags her,
1: and they drive to that fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Mm hmm. And.
0: I mean, can you imagine that?
1: I mean, uh, People that it, 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 aren't from, it, it, you know, s- Southern California, that that is the mountains. It's beautiful, but when you walk around there, it's cold and still, and you get the feeling some things might happen there.
0: Yeah, and this is in the 70s, and it's still very rural. There's not, a, there's no construction of homes up there. Once you go up those roads a few hundred yards, you're you're in the wilderness. There's nobody up there. So, um, Norris rapes her. And, um, he tells Bittaker to take a walk. Bittaker returns and he also rapes her. And they take turns with her. Um, and she asked if they intended to kill her. And they tell her that no. And, um, suddenly, Norris begins to strangle her but he couldn't finish, and according to him, he ran to the van, in front of the van, and threw up. I don't believe that. I believe that's a ruse. I believe he said that because he was trying to sell his story to the police department, so they wouldn't look about him as a, a different kind of creature. And I'll, I'll touch on the point as to why I know he's lying. But he doesn't succeed, and bitter then strangles her until you know she's on the ground unconscious, um, and she goes into convulsions. And this is where the whole toolbox killers come from. Um, he twists a wire coat hanger around her neck and uses vice grip pliers to tighten it run until he's able to kill her. And um, they wrap her in a shower curtain and they just throw her off a cliff and leave her for the animals to, to uh, destroy the body. So you guys are getting a a glimpse at what these guys are doing. And this is just their first. And it it gets worse from there.
1: Yeah, and we'll find that Norris, um, I guess his self-image, I guess, is that he's kind of a weakling. But yeah, I I don't believe that either. I mean, how could you be so repulsed by your actions that you would react to them in real time? You know, it doesn't make sense to me.
0: No, it's a, it's a complete lie. I, I would I would stake my life on it. He's lying, um, and the, the proof is his actions. I always, you know, I, I judge people by their actions. I, you know, and my my father used to say in Spanish, "El en encuentra un idiota misa." In other words, if he could find people to listen to him say mass. Then he keeps saying, you know, he's just a, a liar. I mean, it, it's just, it's bull. But the next young lady um, is Andrea Joy Hall, and she's 18 years old. Two weeks later, July 18, 1979, she is um, hitchhiking on PCH. So they they obviously see her on PCH, and they, they're about to try and pick her up. When another car pulls in front of him, and offers her a ride, which she accepts. Instead of letting it go at that, these two clowns are persistent. They follow the other car that she's in, and they wait till they the car drops her off in Orlando Beach again. Norris's stomping grounds, and they attempt again. This time, Norris hides in the back of the van behind some kind of a a curtain, and uh, so Bittercup looks alone. And once they get to talking to her, he offers her a cold drink and tells her, yeah, go ahead and get it. It's in the back of the truck right there, back of the van. So the young lady sees the door open. She walks, and then occurs in the front, obviously, he's not going to jump in the back. And she goes there to get the beer. When she does, Norris jumps out and attacks her. Um, And then he ties her up, ankles and wrists. And again, they drive to the same uh Gabriel Mountains, but this time they go a bit further up from where they threw the other body of the young lady who they killed. And um Bitteker twice um rapes right, her and the second time Norris thinks that he sees headlights. So Bidaker drags the girl and, and it is Andrea Hill Hall, out of the car, and makes her walk naked up the hill while um, Norris starts the van and goes searching for the other car that he thinks he saw. While he's gone, Bitteker forces her to perform oral sex on him and orders her to pose nude for these Polaroid pictures that he takes. They have then they get the event when he returns and he drives to a different location. They drop her off again with Bitteker and Norris goes off to buy some alcohol. Again, this is Norris speaking. I don't believe him. So according to him, while well, is alone with her, he takes more pictures of her and in the pictures, he's asking her to beg for her life and to give him reasons as to why he shouldn't kill her. And according to court documents, suddenly, like he did with the store clerk, he strikes her with an ice pick to the ear that perforates her ear canal and enters her brain. When she falls, he then turns her over, thrusts the, um, the pick into the other ear, and stomps on it until he breaks the handle, and then he strangles her and again, throws her off a cliff. According to the testimony, Norris was not involved in this. Again, I think he's lying. I think he's trying to wiggle his way out of it. Um, because everything that was said about these things was said during the trial. Which he was testifying against Whitaker.
1: Well, this isn't like a robbery that has like somewhat of a logical motive. Like, you're just not in this situation if you're not into it. Why would you go the second time, you know?
0: Absolutely. Why do it a third time, a fourth time, I mean a fifth time? It it makes absolutely no sense. And that's why I'm convinced that he's a liar and he's only trying to bargain with um, his testimony in exchange
1: for them not to give him the death penalty. Um, it's so creepy to me that, the next one, that Bitteker was like yeah. the face of the operation. So this creepy looking guy who who looks like a, a munchkin with like an estrogen surplus or something, but he is probably non-threat. And like you said, like he wasn't always old, but you know, he, he, he has like an innocent, I can just see him trying to be charming like the creepy ice cream man or something.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, but these guys, there's another word, word to describe them, but monsters. That's the, these, these guys are were nightmares are made of for young girls. And, you know, the, the next two that they, that they arm and kill are extremely disturbing. And, um, I'm going to try and go as quickly over these as I can. I, I don't relish in talking about this or describing what they did to these children because, um, as I said before on this podcast, and people are probably going to be you know up in arms on the things that I say sometimes, if I could rise these guys from the dead, both of them, revive them, and then kill them again, it would not uh, be against social norms. Any father or mother that hears what these guys did would want to do that to these men. These men deserve nothing better. And I've been in prison long enough to know that the prison community, convicts, well, it's the reason why these guys were a protective custody, because they would have killed them. It's simple as that.
1: Yeah, and it it bothers me that, that they get this, you know, this nomer of the toolbox Killers. Unfortunately, that's exactly what it was. So, anyway, um, yeah, we're not, we're not going to glorify this, obviously, or sensationalize it. But why don't you just tell what happened?
0: Yeah. So September third, nineteen seventy nine. Um, Jackie Gillian Gilliam, fifteen, and Jacqueline Lamp, thirteen, are sitting on a bus bench near Hermosa Beach. Uh, they have been hitchhiking before stopping to rest. And they're often arrived from these two characters. And they accept. They also accept that there is that they smoked pot with these guys and they drank some. Um, but Bitaker begins to drive off of PCH and headed in a different direction, and right away the girls become very alarmed, going as far as attempting to open the door and jump out. And Norris Is able to stop the younger, um, young lady, 13 year old, Jacqueline, by hitting her with a bag of weights. And he knocks her out, and he immediately grabs the other girl and begins to try and tie her up. As he does this, uh, the young girl, um, Jacqueline wakes up and again tries to run. But this time, uh, stops Savannah, punches the other girl in the face while Norris drags the other one back there, and they cut them both up. And this is a very violent, traumatic thing. Uh, they believe that they had been seen by people, so they immediately get in the van, they drive off, and they go to their favorite spot, the Sanguero Mountains. And this is where if Norris had any where to say, hey, we shouldn't be doing this, let stop, as he testified that he didn't feel comfortable doing it, this case right here throws it completely out the window. Because over the next two days, they rape and torture both girls. Both men are doing it. They are sleeping next to the girls in order to be lookouts so no one can come up on them and the girls can't try and escape. Um, Bitteker is also into walking these girls up hills and forcing them to pose nude. There's a number of photographs taken and um, Norris takes pictures of Bitteker naked with a young lady and with clothes on as well and while they're doing this they are taping the event on an audio recorder they are torturing the girls they're stabbing the girls with ice picks they're using vice on part of their organs and um this is all being placed on tape and these guys are really glorifying this um Again, Bittiger pulls out an ice pick, stabs the girls again. He strangles one, the Gillian first. And then he, Bittiger, tells the girl, you wanted to stay a virgin, now you'll die a virgin. I don't know why he said that, because they were raping them. But before this is about to happen and you think is gonna do something Norris picks up a sledgehammer and hits her with it on the head um and then Biddicker finishes it by strangling her and and this is the young girl 13 years old um Jacqueline and they throw the body over the embankment and discard them like they're nothing so if this guy Norris was trying to sell this whole, hey, I didn't really want to do this, this right here, um, is proof of said like earlier that he was just trying to get through
1: the DA's office. Uh, do you think, I mean, there's another, very much unfortunately, another victim, but do you think there might be unaccounted for victims that they didn't admit to?
0: You know, it, it's hard to say, but I would think not. Um, and the reason I'm saying this is because Norris was basically trying to make a deal. If there was other victims, I think he would have tried to bargain those victims for less time. And that's why I think there were... I mean, there were other victims that they raped and they come back to haunt these guys, but I don't believe that they had murdered anybody else because they would have come out. These two clowns can't stop talking. It's how they get arrested because... Norris can't keep his mouth shut. So uh, it's really strange, but these guys are not... They're proficient because they, they accomplished some of the things they wanted to do. But because there's two of them, you can't control the mouth of another one. Usually serial killers get away with a lot more, and you really don't know how much they've done until you get into their head. In this case, we have basically a witness, and they kept photographs of what they did, and they kept recordings. So they were the law enforcement was able to really run down everything they actually did based on the photographs and based on the recordings that they had.
1: Yeah, and it flies in the face of the, you know, these doctors who want to claim this guy's some kind of genius. I mean, luckily he's not that smart because we don't want more victims, but I think he was trying to not get caught and just did enough, um, uh, things that that he did get caught, and he stays with the victim. Norris has to go home to his mom, which is hilarious. I mean, it's not hilarious, but you know what I mean. Yeah, well,
0: I think I think had he acted alone, we would be talking about this guy with a body count of probably over thirty or forty, because he hooked up with Norris. So I think Norris got him out of the closet. He's the one that got him to really, you know, kind of flex that that muscle that he'd never flexed before. Once he flexed it, he knew what he wanted to do. But unfortunately for Biddecker, Norris couldn't keep his mouth shut. He's the dumber, the he might be even the more violent of the two, but and sadistic. But he's an idiot. And, you know, that they taped everything and kept Polaroids, you know, I get the whole Sylvanier, but that was a dumb move. So we come to the last young lady that these two creeps um, murdered, and that's Shirley um, Lifford. She was 16, so we, we have now that they have killed a 19-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old, and now they're going for the 16-year-old. They're missing the 14-year-old. Uh, so on October 31st, 1979, on Hollywood Nights in um, Sunland, Tahonda, California, uh, Miss Lidford accepts a bride from these two guys because she knew Bitteker. That's a new one. So she worked as a waitress, and she had seen Bitteker at the place come in and eat. So she recognized him. She gets in the van, and, um, you know, right away... Uh, these guys begin tormenting her. Um, she's bound and gagged. And this time, Norris trades places and drives. Bitteker begins to slap her. And when she begins to respond hysterically, because she knows she's in trouble, he tells her to scream louder. He wants her to scream. And this van turns into a house of horror because Norris turns up the stereo And Bideker begins to really beat her up. And um, he is actually putting all this on tape. The entire ordeal is on tape. And um, he immediately, he he rapes her, he sodomizes her. And, you know, he can be heard on the tape using pliers and a hammer on her, going as far as hitting her in the elbow to make her scream more. He's torturing her. It's a two-hour event. Um, he's just tormenting her. No matter what he plans, he's just telling her to scream. He wants to hear her. And he goes into his little mode of strangling her with a coat hanger. And he tightens these with the pliers. And this time, when they kill her, they go to the front lawn of the home in Sunland And they just scarred the body in the front yard. But the the part that really is disturbing that they kept this entire tape recording, the entire ordeal with them, and they listened to it. It was something that they they both enjoyed. And um, so the following month, after this takes place, they haven't picked up or killed anybody. Norris meets up with a guy named Joseph Jackson. And he, listen to this, another guy from the men's colony. And he begins to brag to him about what he and Bitteker have been doing over the past few months. He tells them of the murders, and he shows them, shows him things that they have done. So this guy, Joseph Jackson, he immediately contacts his attorney and says, listen, what do I do? he's advised to go to the police department. So this is where that case that I told you comes back and haunts these two clowns. Robin Robick was raped months before these guys actually got to killing. And they had used mace on her after they raped her. And they just basically let her go. And she filed a police report. When Jackson... mentions the May spray, they put two and two together. A detective a detective biome of the Homota police department um finds uh, Miss Robin and shows her photographs of Norris and Biddicker. She picks them both out of the lineups and then right there is where the case begins. Because now everything that Joseph Jackson's told them that these guys are murdering women in the van And Robin Robick describes the van to a details. Every detail she knows about the van. Now they go into this mode of trying to catch these guys. They put them under surveillance. And they pick up Norris. And they find what they're looking for. Both men are arrested. Search warrants are issued. In their apartment, they reveal these photographs, these Polaroids of the girls that they've killed. Um, they have the two necklaces of the two young girls, Gilliam and Lemp, uh, and they find the recordings, specifically the one of Miss Ledford. And the reason they were able to tell who these women were was they contacted Miss Ledford's mother. And this is horrible. Her mother's able to identify her voice of her daughter on the tape. And, um, they find over 100 Polaroids. I think it's something like 500 Polaroids of other girls that they had um, picked up and some of the photographs were taken from a distance so obviously the girls didn't know they were being photographed. These guys were actually stalking women to find the right ones that they wanted to pick up. And um, finally, of course, in Norris's apartment, they find a bracelet that belonged to Miss Ledford. And that's how they were arrested. As you mentioned, um, Norris immediately starts telling the police that it's Bitteker, and he goes as far as testifying against him. And, of course, we know that Bitter got the death penalty, but Norris received a life sentence where he had to live—had uh, to serve— a minimum of 30 years. I don't believe that 30 years time or 40 or 50 years time is enough time to make up for five murders and rapes of so many other women as these two clowns did.
1: Yeah. Uh, so what, what was the relationship between these guys? Was it just that they had this mutual, um, interest in torturing people for, you know, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, were they, like, sexually involved with each other or something? I I don't believe they were. I think
0: their connection is really based on their hatred of women and wanting to harm girls and, and rape, torture. I mean, rape is not about sex. It's about the violence and the control that they tied up these girls, and tortured them the way they did and allowed them to know that they were going to die before they killed them, that's just complete control of the situation. These guys were about control about the violence of rape and misogyny. They hated these girls. Both of these guys, you've seen them. They're not the most suave guys in the world. These are not the guys that would go to a club and women would like to be with these guys. These guys are probably made fun of, they spent most of their, their young lives in prison as, as teenagers, as, a, as a children in foster care. They probably did not receive the kind of attention where they would develop, um, you know, normal, healthy relationships with women or girls. They probably didn't date much. So... My best guess is that both these guys were inept with women and they felt insecure, so they attacked what they felt insecure about. It's a, it's a mechanism, it's a, it's a tough guy mechanism. They try to overcompensate for what they're not good at, and that is by controlling and raping and torturing these women and doing what they felt was needed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, both of them died, you know, in prison at relatively normal ages. Bitteker was 79, died in uh, San Quentin. Uh, I would assume that he did not have an easy time on death row. It, it seems like the type of person that everyone wants to uh, punish. Well,
0: it's funny you would ask because he did have friends. His friends were William Bonney, the freeway killer. Uh, Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer. Rodney Akala, the dating game killer. These guys sit around playing cards with each other. They took photographs together. Um, they had a number of groupies that would come see them. Because these guys are part of that whole murder memorabilia clown act that they pull off with these groupies that like serial killers. And... Um, Bittiger was known as the porn king on death row back in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s where there there were no rules about what you can get in prison. Bitterker, you know, peddled a lot of pornography. Him and actually Richard Ramirez were very close. They lived right above each other, so they would share pornography. And um, I don't know if a lot of the, the audience knows this, but when you're on death row or you have a capital cage, you have certain privileges because you have to assist in your own defense. So, in fact, you don't get executed. It's one of your rights. And one of those rights is to keep all evidence that was used against you. And guess what that was? Copies of those Polaroids he took of all these girls and pictures of all the souvenirs he took. So this guy kept reliving his crimes over and over again on death row. And that's why I always say, you know, when you guys give or somebody gives someone a death penalty, you're kind of giving them a free ride in some ways if they go to a protective custody yard and they got their little groupies and they have their friends they hang around with, as I mentioned. Um, so, yeah, you know, hey, birds with a feather, right, flock together, and you have a perfect example here of him. He was also got a, he had a bad reputation with the officers here. He would sue for everything. They once gave him a, a lunchback or lunch bag with cookies inside, and the cookies were broken.
1: This clown sued the officer because he gave him broken cookies. Mm-hmm. So he seemed to be kind of uh, reveling in whatever, you know, his exploits. Is, is there anything that's been drafted since then that you can't have, like, really explicit evidence just because you're gaming the system because you like looking at these things?
0: No. You... Definitely, there, there, are, there is no more pornography in the, in the California Department of Corrections. Anything with obscene nature that's not artistic uh, or scientific, you can't have it. So playboy can have, things like that. Absolutely forbidden. Um, but you cannot stop these guys from having um, evidence from their case. And a lot of these serial killers keep that stuff in their cells, and they relive it. I don't know it sounds pretty jacked up, but that's exactly... The rights that they retain while they're here um so yeah creepy guy died in prison um just a really bad guy um he could never go to a normal yard because he wouldn't last 30 seconds out there so he stayed in the protective custody
1: yard his whole time here how many of these psychos are there like when i, I kind of look at the media and it's, a, it's an interesting angle, a toolbox killer, but the fact is that they did have a toolbox full of instruments. Like, did he get lucky, I guess is the way to say it, by, by being this notorious because of the toolbox, or, or is he just a different animal than... How, how many of these guys are there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. In prison,
0: on death, or just in general?
1: I think there probably are some of them um, out and about in the world, unfortunately, but yeah, I, I kind of meant like just in the prison demographic.
0: Well, we know who they are because we, we've heard you know, Richard Maris and all those guys. There's, there's probably anywhere in the neighborhood of between, I'd say between 30 and 35 here on death row that are considered serial killers or worse, because a lot of them have died of old age. Now, it, Richard Ramirez is dead. Bitteker is dead. Rodney Acala is dead. I mean, there's a lot of them that are gone. Yes. Out of society at large it's difficult to say because a lot of these guys that have the potential to do it don't actually act on it. They're living in their mind. They're preparing for it, but they don't actually go through with it. Now, the ones that do go through with it, I'd say there's always the United States between 40 and 60 zero proofs working at any given time.
1: Yeah, so when you say 30, you know, 35 in San Quentin, obviously California is the most populous state. And I think also people gravitate toward, you know, California. Obviously there's a huge influx of people, so it's a small number. You know, obviously if you look at the the population of the U.S., if there's a few hundred of these guys, it's the odds are definitely in your favor, but I don't know. They're obviously out there, and, and it's scary. I don't know how else to end on it. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of them have high counts. There's 30 or 40 or 50.
0: There's been a few, uh, maybe a couple hundred, but their body counts are extremely high. And then we're also talking about the ones that we know about. There are serial killers out there that have killed for 30, 40 years. We, have, we know of them. We know of... The, the Golden State Killer, he killed in the '70s, '80s, and he was out for 40 years. There are another other ones that have done the same thing. Truck drivers. There are rural roads up I-80, and all these the women are always on these roads, and they're getting picked up. And they disappear. You know? Did you know that over 600,000 women are reported missing every year? Let me repeat that. Over six hundred 100,000 women are reported missing every year. Where do they go? Who picks them up? Did some of them go in the slave trade, sex trade? Absolutely. How many of those did serial killers take? Those are big numbers. And I guess in the, the population of the, of the United States are not big numbers. But when you become one of them, those numbers become significantly um, relevant to your situation. And I've had the the displeasure of listening to these guys sometimes talk about what they've done. I don't like it. I listen because I like to study these guys. I think that I'm doing a service by talking about their habits, what they do, what they don't do. It's not pleasing but to listen to these guys talk of how they pick up people, how they get around to doing it, it's scary. It's scary. You're a young woman or a young boy and don't know any better. And, um, it's disturbing.
1: Well, I had an incident. I was, I know I was under drinking age. I think I was 20, 19 or 20. And I was in the middle of Oregon with the, my girlfriend at the time. And these two guys, um, And these two guys after the show you know were buying us drinks me and the girl and i was all about it because i was dead broke and so they they were plying us a drinks and one of them said something like well you guys can stay at our house and then i got like oh that's a bit weird but i was very naive and she went to go to the bathroom or something so a little bit too much time went by. So I, I just walked into the women's bathroom. You know, it's a it's a big place where you wouldn't want to walk into the women's bathroom. And and this guy had her kind of pinned against the wall. And I just reacted. I didn't know what to do. So I said, "All right, uh, we're leaving right now." I didn't want to fight him. I don't I don't know. I, I just my reaction was flight. And so I was looking over my shoulder. We walked back to the car that was kind of in a a parking lot. And we went as fast as possible. And somehow, first thing I did was I got in the car. I said, lock the doors. And as I'm locking the doors, this was an old car. So you had to actually um, physically you know, put your fingers on the lock. And as I did that, one of them was yanking on the... uh, on the car door to try and pull me out, but luckily I had locked the door before I started it, and uh, and just you know got out of there as, as fast as I could. But those guys were obviously serial killers, and, and uh, I, I'll probably yeah, reveal see, that's a, that's a good who they who they were. Yeah, the well. young lady was actually the, the young lady was lucky; she was with you. Had you not walked into that bathroom, things could have got bad really fast. These guys respond instinctively like
0: animals. They are running on adrenaline, they're running on instinct, and their own particular drive. You can't make a whole lot of sense. That's why syrups are so hard to pinpoint, because they pick randomly. You never know what they're thinking, what's going to set them off, what triggers that particular instinct in them. You're lucky, man. You're very lucky.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow, I haven't even thought about that for a while. But yeah, I mean they're out there, so I don't, I don't know what else to say. I I'm glad that he's dead, and I I maybe don't let these guys out of a psych ward in the future. I don't know. No,
0: absolutely. You know, it's, I mean I could hear it in your voice because you could probably hear how my voice drops when I start talking about these guys. But this is a disturbing case. I, I when I read this guy's case again, I just it did not set well with me and i can tell it's affected you because you've been kind of quiet this whole time and i know you it's going through your head you can't unread or unexperience what these guys did and it's very troubling and bothering it bothers the hell out of me honest with you
1: yeah well you know it's our i guess it's just our job to uh talk about it and uh This is, I guess, this has been Death Row Diaries, and we'll have another story um, next next week. So I'm Matt Ralston, and I'm Willie Nino Guerra.
0: Have a good evening.
1: Yeah, we'll see you next time.